Section 1 of Father Sergius. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Carson. Father Sergius by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Louise and Eimer Maud. Section 1. Chapter 1. In Petersburg in the 1840s, a surprising event occurred. An officer of the Cuirassier Lifeguards, a handsome prince who everyone predicted would become aide-de-camp to the Emperor Nicholas I and have a brilliant career, left the service, broke off his engagement to a beautiful maid of honor, a favorite of the Empress's, gave his small estate to his sister, and retired to a monastery to become a monk. This event appeared extraordinary and inexplicable to those who did not know his inner motives, but for Prince Stepan Katsatsky himself it all occurred so naturally that he could not imagine how he could have acted otherwise. His father, a retired colonel of the guards, had died when Stepan was twelve, and sorry as his mother was to part with her son, she entered him at the military college as her deceased husband had intended. The widow herself, with her daughter Varvara, moved to Petersburg to be near her son and have him with her for the holidays. The boy was distinguished both by his brilliant ability and by his immense self-esteem. He was first both in his studies, especially in mathematics, of which he was particularly fond, and also in drill and in riding. Though of more than average height, he was handsome and agile, and he would have been an altogether exemplary cadet had it not been for his quick temper. He was remarkably truthful, and was neither dissipated nor addicted to drink. The only faults that marred his conduct were fits of fury to which he was subject, and during which he lost control of himself and became like a wild animal. He once nearly threw out of the window another cadet who had begun to tease him about his collection of minerals. On another occasion he came almost completely to grief by flinging a whole dish of cutlets at an officer who was acting as steward, attacking him, and, it was said, striking him for having broken his word and told a barefaced lie. He would certainly have been reduced to the ranks had not the director of the college hushed up the whole matter and dismissed the steward. By the time he was eighteen he had finished his college courses and received a commission as lieutenant in an aristocratic regiment of the guards. The Emperor Nicholas Pavlovich Nicholas I, had noticed him while he was still at the college and continued to take notice of him in the regiment, and it was on this account that people predicted for him an appointment as aide-de-camp to the Emperor. Kasatsky himself strongly desired it, not from ambition only, but chiefly because, since his cadet days, he had been passionately devoted to Nicholas Pavlovich. The emperor had often visited the military college, and every time Kasatsky saw that tall, erect figure with breast expanded in its military overcoat, entering with brisk step, saw the cropped side-whiskers, the moustache, the aquiline nose, and heard the sonorous voice exchanging greetings with the cadets, he was seized by the same rapture that he experienced later on when he met the woman he loved. Indeed, his passionate adoration of the emperor was even stronger. He wished to sacrifice something, everything, even himself, to prove his complete devotion and the Emperor Nicholas was conscious of evoking this rapture, and deliberately aroused it. He played with the cadets, surrounded himself with them, treating them sometimes with childish simplicity, sometimes as a friend, and then again with majestic solemnity. After that affair with the officer, Nicholas Pavlovich said nothing to Skazatsky, but when the latter approached he waved him away theatrically, frowned, shook his finger at him, and afterwards, when leaving, said, Remember that I know everything. There are some things I would rather not know, but they remain here, and he pointed to his heart. 
when on leaving college the cadets were received by the emperor he did not again refer to kasatsky's offence but told them all as was his custom that they should serve him and the fatherland loyally that he would always be their best friend and that when necessary they might approach him direct all the cadets were as usual greatly moved and kasatsky even shed tears remembering the past and vowed that he would serve his beloved czar with all his soul when kasatsky took up his commission his mother moved with her daughter first to moscow and then to their country estate kasatsky gave half his property to his sister and kept only enough to maintain himself in the expensive regiment he had joined to all appearance he was just an ordinary brilliant young officer of the guards making a career for himself but intense and complex strivings went on within him from early childhood his efforts had seemed to be very varied but essentially they were all one and the same he tried in everything he took up to attain such success and perfection as would evoke praise and surprise whether it was his studies or his military exercises he took them up and worked at them till he was praised and held up as an example to others mastering one subject he took up another and obtained first place in his studies for example while still at college he noticed in himself an awkwardness in french conversation and contrived to master french till he spoke it as well as russian and then he took up chess and became an excellent player apart from his main vocation which was the service of his czar and the fatherland he always set himself some particular aim and however unimportant it was devoted himself completely to it and lived for it until it was accomplished and as soon as it was attained another aim would immediately present itself replacing its predecessor this passion for distinguishing himself or for accomplishing something in order to distinguish himself filled his life on taking up his commission he set himself to acquire the utmost perfection in knowledge of the service and very soon became a model officer though still with the same fault of ungovernable irascibility which here in the service again led him to commit action inimical to his success then he took to reading having once in conversation in society felt himself deficient in general education and again achieved his purpose then wishing to secure a brilliant position in high society he learnt to dance excellently and very soon was invited to all the balls in the best circles and to some of their evening gatherings but this did not satisfy him he was accustomed to being first and in this society was far from being so the highest society then consisted and i think always consist of four sorts of people rich people who are received at court people not wealthy but born and brought up in court circles rich people who ingratiate themselves into the court set and people neither rich nor belonging to the court but who ingratiate themselves into the first and second sets karatsky did not belong to the first two sets but was readily welcomed in the others on entering society he determined to have relations with some society lady and to his own surprise quickly accomplished this purpose he soon realized however that the circles in which he moved were not the highest and that though he was received in the highest spheres he did not belong to them they were polite to him but showed by their whole manner that they had their own set and that he was not of it and kasatsky wished to belong to that inner circle to attain to that end it would be necessary to be an aide-de-camp to the emperor which he expected to become or to marry into that exclusive set which he resolved to do and his choice fell on a beauty belonging to the court who not merely belonged to the circle into which he wished to be accepted but whose friendship was coveted by the very highest people and those most firmly established in that highest circle this was the countess koratkova kasatsky began to pay court to her 
and not merely for the sake of his career. She was extremely attractive, and he soon fell in love with her. At first she was noticeably cool towards him, but then suddenly changed and became gracious, and her mother gave him pressing invitations to visit them. Kasatsky proposed and was accepted. He was surprised at the facility with which he attained such happiness. But though he noticed something strange and unusual in the behavior towards him of both mother and daughter, he was blinded by being so deeply in love, and did not realize what almost the whole town knew, namely, that his fiancée had been the Emperor Nicholas's mistress the previous year. Two weeks before the day arranged for the wedding, Kosarsky was at Zarsko Selo, at his fiancée's country place. It was a hot day in May. He and his betrothed had walked about the garden and were sitting on a bench in a shady linden alley. Mary's white muslin dress suited her particularly well, and she seemed the personification of innocence and love as she sat, now bending her head, now gazing up at the very tall and handsome man who was speaking to her with particular tenderness and self-restraint, as if he feared by word or gesture to offend or sully her angelic purity. Kasatsky belonged to those men of the eighteen-forties, they are now no longer to be found, who, while deliberately and without any conscientious scruples condoning impurity in themselves, required ideal and angelic purity in their women, regarded all unmarried women of their circle as possessed of such purity, and treated them accordingly. There was much that was false and harmful in this outlook, as concerning the laxity the men permitted themselves, but in regard to the women that old-fashioned view, sharply differing from that held by young people to-day, who see in every girl merely a female seeking a mate, was, I think, of value. The girls, perceiving such adoration, endeavoured with more or less success to be goddesses. Such was the view Kasatsky held of women, and that was how he regarded his fiancée. He was particularly in love that day, but did not experience any sensual desire for her. On the contrary, he regarded her with tender adoration as something unattainable. He rose to his full height, standing before her with both hands on his sabre. I have only now realized what happiness a man can experience. And it is you, my darling, who have given me this happiness, he said with a timid smile. Endearments had not yet become usual between them, and, feeling himself morally inferior, he felt terrified at that stage to use them to such an angel. It is thanks to you that I have come to know myself. I have learnt that I am better than I thought. I have known that for a long time. That was why I began to love you. Nightingales trilled nearby, and the fresh leafage rustled, moved by a passing breeze. He took her hand and kissed it, and tears came into his eyes. She understood that he was thanking her for having said she loved him. He silently took a few steps up and down, and then approached her again and sat down. You know, I have to tell you, I was not disinterested when I began to make love to you. I wanted to get into society, but later, how unimportant that became in comparison with you, when I got to know you. You are not angry with me for that? She did not reply, but merely touched his hand. He understood that this meant, No, I am not angry. You said, he hesitated. It seemed too bold to say. You said that you began to love me. I believe it, but there is something that troubles you and checks your feeling. What is it? Yes, now or never, thought she. He is bound to know of it anyway, but now he will not forsake me. Ah, if he should, it would be terrible. And she threw a loving glance at his tall, noble, powerful figure. She loved him now more than she had loved the Tsar and apart from the imperial dignity would not have preferred the emperor to him. Listen, I cannot deceive you. I have to tell you. 
You ask what it is. It is that I have loved before. She again laid her hand on his with an imploring gesture. He was silent. You want to know who it was? It was the Emperor. We all love him. I can imagine you, a schoolgirl at the Institute. No, it was later. I was infatuated, but it passed. I must tell you. Well, what of it? No, it was not simply. She covered her face with her hands. What? You gave yourself to him? She was silent. His mistress? She did not answer. He sprang up and stood before her with trembling jaws, pale as death. He now remembered how the Emperor, meeting him at Nevsky, had amiably congratulated him. Oh, God, what have I done? Stiva! Don't touch me, don't touch me! Oh, how it pains! He turned away and went to the house. There he met her mother. What is the matter, Prince? I... She became silent on seeing his face. The blood had suddenly rushed to his head. You knew it, and used me to shield them. If you weren't a woman, he cried, lifting his enormous fist, and turning aside he ran away. Had his fiancé's lover been a private person, he would have killed him, but it was his beloved Tsar. Next day he applied both for furlough and his discharge, and, professing to be ill, so as to see no one, he went away to the country. He spent the summer at his village arranging his affairs. When summer was over he did not return to Petersburg, but entered a monastery, and there became a monk. His mother wrote to try to dissuade him from this decisive step, but he replied that he felt God's call which transcended all other considerations. Only his sister, who was as proud and ambitious as he, understood him. She understood that he had become a monk in order to be above those who considered themselves his superiors, and she understood him correctly. By becoming a monk he showed contempt for all that seemed most important to others, and had seemed so to him, while he was in the service, and he now ascended a height from which he could look down on those he had formerly envied. But it was not this alone, as his sister Varvara supposed, that influenced him. There was also in him something else, a sincere religious feeling which Varvara did not know, which intertwined itself with the feeling of pride and his desire for preeminence, and guided him. His disillusionment with Mary, whom he had thought of angelic purity, and his sense of injury, were so strong that they brought him to despair, and the despair led him to what? To God, to his childhood's faith, which had never been destroyed in him. Chapter 2 Kasatsky entered the monastery on the feast of the intercession of the Blessed Virgin. The abbot of that monastery was a gentleman of birth, a learned writer, and a starets. That is, he belonged to that succession of monks originating in Wallachia, who each choose a director and teacher whom they implicitly obey. This superior had been a disciple of the Starets Ambrose, who was a disciple of Micarius, who was a disciple of the Starets Leonid, who was a disciple of Pausi Velichkovsky. To this abbot Kasatsky submitted himself as to his chosen director. Here in the monastery, besides the feeling of ascendancy over others that such a life gave him, he felt much as he had done in the world. He found satisfaction in attaining the greatest possible perfection outwardly as well as inwardly. As in the regiment he had been not merely an irreproachable officer, but had even exceeded his duties and widened the borders of perfection, so also as a monk he tried to be perfect and was always industrious, abstemious, submissive, and meek, as well as pure, both in deed and in thought, and obedient. This last quality in particular made life far easier for him. 
if many of the divans of life in the monastery which was near the capital and much frequented did not please him and were temptations to him they were all nullified by obedience it is not for me to reason my business is to do the task set me whether it be standing beside the relics singing in the choir or making up accounts in the monastery guest-house all possibility of doubt about anything was silenced by obedience to the starets had it not been for this he would have been oppressed by the length and monotony of the church services the bustle of the many visitors and the bad qualities of the other monks as it was he not only bore it all joyfully but found in it solace and support i don't know why it is necessary to hear the same prayers several times a day but i know that it is necessary and knowing this i find joy in them his director told him that as material food is necessary for the maintenance of the life of the body so spiritual food the church prayers is necessary for the maintenance of the spiritual life he believed this and though the church services for which he had to get up early in the morning were a difficulty they certainly calmed him and gave him joy this was the result of his consciousness of humility and the certainty that whatever he had to do being fixed by the starets was right the interest of his life consisted not only in an ever greater and greater subjugation of his will but in the attainment of all the christian virtues which at first seemed to him easily attainable he had given his whole estate to his sister and did not regret it he had no personal claims humility toward his inferiors was not merely easy for him but afforded him pleasure even victory over the sins of the flesh greed and lust was easily attained his director had specially warned him against the latter sin but kasatsky felt free from it and was glad one thing only tormented him the remembrance of his fiancee and not merely the remembrance but the vivid image of what might have been involuntarily he recalled a lady he knew who had been a favorite of the emperor's but had afterwards married and become an admirable wife and mother the husband had a high position influence and honor and a good and penitent wife in his better hours kasatsky was not disturbed by such thoughts and when he recalled them at such times he was merely glad to feel that the temptation was past but there were moments when all that made up his present life suddenly grew dim before him moments when if he did not cease to believe in the aims he had set himself he ceased to see them and could evoke no confidence in them but was seized by a remembrance of and terrible to say a regret for the change of life he had made the only thing that saved him in that state of mind was obedience and work and the fact that the whole day was occupied by prayer he went through the usual forms of prayer he bowed in prayer he even prayed more than usual but it was lip service only and his soul was not in it this condition would continue for a day or sometimes for two days and would then pass of itself but those days were dreadful kasatsky felt that he was neither in his own hands nor in god's but subject to something else all he could do then was to obey the starets to restrain himself to undertake nothing and simply to wait in general all this time he lived not by his own will but by that of the starets and in this obedience he found a special tranquillity so he lived in his first monastery for seven years at the end of the third year he received the tonsure and was ordained to the priesthood by the name of sergius the profession was an important event in his inner life he had previously experienced a great consolation and spiritual exaltation when receiving communion and now when he himself officiated the performance of the preparation filled him with ecstatic and deep emotion but subsequently that feeling became more and more deadened and once when he was officiating in a depressed state of mind he felt that the influence produced on him by the service would not endure and it did in fact weaken till only the habit remained 
In general, in the seventh year of his life in the monastery, Sergius grew weary. He had learnt all there was to learn, and had attained all there was to attain, there was nothing more to do, and his spiritual drowsiness increased. During this time he heard of his mother's death and his sister Varvara's marriage, but both events were matters of indifference to him. His whole attention and his whole interest were concentrated on his inner life. In the fourth year of his priesthood, during which the bishop had been particularly kind to him, the starets told him that he ought not to decline it if he were offered an appointment to higher duties. Then monastic ambition, the very thing he had found so repulsive in other monks, arose within him. He was assigned to a monastery near the metropolis. He wished to refuse, but the starets ordered him to accept the appointment. He did so, and took leave of the starets, and moved to the other monastery. The exchange into the Metropolitan Monastery was an important event in Sergius's life. There he encountered many temptations, and his whole will-power was concentrated on meeting them. In the first monastery women had not been a temptation to him, but here that temptation arose with terrible strength, and even took definite shape. There was a lady, known for her frivolous behavior, who began to seek his favor. She talked to him and asked him to visit her. Sergius sternly declined, but was horrified by the definiteness of her desire. He was so alarmed that he wrote about it to the starets, and in addition to keep himself in hand, he spoke to a young novice, and, conquering his sense of shame, confessed his weakness to him, asking him to keep watch on him, and not let him go anywhere except to service and to fulfill his duties. Besides this, a great pitfall for Sergius lay in the fact of his extreme antipathy to his new abbot, a cunning worldly man who was making a career for himself in the church. Struggle with himself as he might, he could not master that feeling. He was submissive to the abbot, but in the depths of his soul he never ceased to condemn him, and in the second year of his residence at the new monastery that ill-feeling broke out. The vigil service was being performed in the large church on the eve of the feast of the intercession of the Blessed Virgin, and there were many visitors. The abbot himself was conducting the service. Father Sergius was standing in his usual place and praying. That is, he was in that condition of struggle which always occupied him during the service, especially in the large church, when he was not himself conducting the service. This conflict was occasioned by his irritation at the presence of fine folk, especially ladies. He tried not to see them, or to notice all that went on, how a soldier conducted them, pushing the common people aside, how the ladies pointed out the monks to one another, especially himself, and a monk noted for his good looks. He tried, as it were, to keep his mind in blinkers, to see nothing but the light of the candles on the altar-screen, the icons, and those conducting the service. He tried to hear nothing but the prayers that were being chanted or read, to feel nothing but self-oblivion in consciousness of the fulfillment of duty, a feeling he always experienced when hearing or reciting in advance the prayers he had so often heard. So he stood, crossing and prostrating himself when necessary, and struggled with himself, now giving way to cold condemnation, and now to a consciously evoked obliteration of thought and feeling. Then the sacristan, Father Nicodemus, also a great stumbling-block to Sergius, who involuntarily reproached him for flattering and fawning on the abbot, approached him and, bowing low, requested his presence behind the holy gates. Father Sergius straightened his mantle, put on his beretta, and went circumspectly through the crowd. Lisez, regarde à joie, c'est lui, he heard a woman's voice say. Ooh, ooh! Il n'est pas perdument beau. He knew that they were speaking of him. He heard them, and as always at moments of temptation, he repeated the words, Lead us not into temptation, 
and bowing his head and lowering his eyes went past the ambo and in by the north door, avoiding the cannons in their cassocks, who were just then passing the altar-screen. On entering the sanctuary he bowed, crossing himself as usual, and bending double before the icons. Then, raising his head, but without turning, he glanced out of the corner of his eye at the abbot, whom he saw standing beside another glittering figure. The abbot was standing by the wall in his vestments. Having freed his short, plump hands from beneath his chasuble, he had folded them over his fat body and protruding stomach, and fingering the cords of his vestments, was smilingly saying something to a military man in the uniform of a general of the imperial suite, with its insignia and shoulder-knots, which Father Sergius's experienced eye at once recognized. This general had been the commander of the regiment in which Sergius had served. He now evidently occupied an important position, and Father Sergius at once noticed that the abbot was aware of this, and that his red face and bald head beamed with satisfaction and pleasure. This vexed and disgusted Father Sergius, the more so when he heard that the abbot had only sent for him to satisfy the general's curiosity to see a man who had formerly served with him, as he expressed it. "'Very pleased to see you in your angelic guise,' said the general, holding out his hand. "'I hope you have not forgotten an old comrade.' "'The whole thing,' the abbot's red, smiling face amid his fringe of grey, the general's words, his well-cared-for face, with its self-satisfied smile and the smell of wine from his breath and of cigars from his whiskers, revolted Father Sergius. He bowed again to the abbot and said, "'Your reverence deigned to send for me?' and stopped the whole expression of his face and eyes, asking why. "'Yes, to meet the general,' replied the abbot. Your reverence, I left the world to save myself from temptation, said Father Sergius, turning pale and with quivering lips. Why do you expose me to it during prayers and in God's house? You may go, go, said the abbot, flaring up and frowning. Next day Father Sergius asked pardon of the abbot and of the brethren for his pride, but at the same time, after a night spent in prayer, he decided that he must leave this monastery, and he wrote to the starets begging permission to return to him. He wrote that he felt his weakness and incapacity to struggle against temptation without his help, and penitently confessed his sin of pride. By return of post came a letter from the starets, who wrote that Sergius's pride was the cause of all that had happened. The old man pointed out that his fits of anger were due to the fact that in refusing all clerical honors he humiliated himself, not for the sake of God, but for the sake of his pride. There now, am I not a splendid man, not to want anything? That was why he could not tolerate the abbot's action. I have renounced everything for the glory of God, and here I am exhibited like a wild beast." Had you renounced vanity, for God's sake, you would have borne it. Worldly pride is not yet dead in you. I have thought about you, Sergius, my son, and prayed also, and this is what God has suggested to me. At the Tambov Hermitage, the anchorite Hilary, a man of saintly life, has died. He had lived there eighteen years. The Tambov Abbot is asking whether there is not a brother who would take his place. And here comes your letter. Go to Father Paisy of the Tambov Monastery. I will write to him about you, and you must ask for Hilary's cell. Not that you can replace Hilary, but you need solitude to quell your pride. May God bless you. Sergius obeyed the starets, showed his letter to the abbot, and having obtained his permission, gave up his cell, handed all his possessions over to the monastery, and set out for the Tambov Hermitage. There the abbot, an excellent manager of merchant origin, received Sergius simply and quietly, and placed him in Hilary's cell, at first assigning him a lay brother, but afterwards leaving him alone at Sergius's own request. The cell was a dual cave dug into the hillside, 
and in it Hilary had been buried. In the back part was Hilary's grave, while in the front was a niche for sleeping, with a straw mattress, a small table, and a shelf with icons and books. Outside the outer door, which fastened with a hook, was another shelf on which, once a day, a monk placed food from the monastery. And so Sergius became a hermit. Chapter 3 at Carnival time, in the sixth year of Sergius's life at the Hermitage, a merry company of rich people, men and women from a neighboring town, made up a troika party after a meal of Carnival pancakes and wine. The company consisted of two lawyers, a wealthy landowner, an officer, and four ladies. One lady was the officer's wife, another the wife of the landowner, the third his sister, a young girl and the fourth a divorcee, beautiful, rich, and eccentric, who amazed and shocked the town by her escapades. The weather was excellent, and the snow-covered road smooth as a floor. They drove some seven miles out of town, and then stopped and consulted as to whether they should turn back or drive farther. "'But where does this road lead to?' asked Makovkina, the beautiful divorcee to tambov eight miles from here replied one of the lawyers who was having a flirtation with her and then where then on to l blank past the monastery where that father sergius lives yes kasatsky the handsome hermit yes madame et monsieur let us drive on and see kasatsky we can stop at tambov and have something to eat but we shouldn't get home to-night. Never mind, we will stay at Kasatsky's. Well, there is a very good hostelry at the monastery. I stayed there when I was defending a Makin. No, I shall spend the night at Kasatsky's. Impossible. Even your omnipotence could not accomplish that. Impossible? Will you bet? All right. If you spend the night with him, the stake shall be whatever you like. A discretion. But on your side, too. Yes, of course. Let us drive on. Vodka was handed to the drivers, and the party got out a box of pies, wine, and sweets for themselves. The ladies wrapped up in their white dogskins. The drivers disputed as to whose troika should go ahead, and the youngest, seating himself sideways with a dashing air, swung his loud knout and shouted to the horses. The troika bells tinkled, and the sledge-runners squeaked over the snow. The sledge swayed hardly at all. The shaft-horse, with his tightly bound tail under his decorated breech-band, galloped smoothly and briskly. The smooth road seemed to run rapidly backwards, while the driver dashingly shook the reins. One of the lawyers and the officer sitting opposite talked nonsense to Makovkina's neighbor. But Makovkina herself sat motionless and in thought, tightly wrapped in her fur. Always the same and always nasty, the same red, shiny faces smelling of wine and cigars, the same talk, the same thoughts, and always about the same things, and they are all satisfied and confident that it should be so, and will go on living like that till they die but I can't. It bores me. I want something that would upset it all and turn it upside down. Suppose it happened to us as to those people. At Saratov, was it? Who kept on driving and froze to death? What would our people do? How would they behave? Basely for certain, each for himself, and I too should act badly. But I, at any rate, have beauty. They all know it. And how about that monk? Is it possible that he has become indifferent to it? No. That is the one thing they all care for. Like that cadet last autumn. What a fool he was. Ivan Nikolaevich, she said aloud. What are your commands? How old is he? Who? Karsatsky. Over forty, I should think. And does he receive all visitors? Yes, everybody, but not always. Cover up your feet. Not like that. How clumsy you are. No, more, more. Like that. 
but you need not squeeze them. So they came to the forest where the cell was. Makovkina got out of the sledge and told them to drive on. They tried to dissuade her, but she grew irritable and ordered them to go on. When the sledges had gone, she went up the path in her white dogskin coat. The lawyer got out and stopped to watch her. It was Father Sergius's sixth year as a recluse, and he was now forty-nine. His life in solitude was hard, not on account of the fasts and the prayers, they were no hardship to him, but on account of an inner conflict he had not at all anticipated. The sources of that conflict were two, doubts and the lust of the flesh, and these two enemies always appeared together. It seemed to him that they were two foes, but in reality they were one and the same. As soon as doubt was gone, so was the lustful desire. But thinking them to be two different fiends, he fought them separately. Oh, my God, my God, thought he, why dost thou not grant me faith? There is lust, of course. Even the saints had to fight that, St. Anthony and others, but they had faith while I have moments, hours, and days when it is absent. Why does the whole world, with all its delights, exist if it is sinful and must be renounced? Why hast thou created this temptation? Temptation! Is it not rather a temptation that I wish to abandon all the joys of earth and prepare something for myself there where perhaps there is nothing? and he became horrified and filled with disgust at himself vile creature and it is you who wish to become a saint he upbraided himself and he began to pray but as soon as he started to pray he saw himself vividly as he had been at the monastery in a majestic post in beretta and mantle and he shook his head no that is not right it is deception I may deceive others, but not myself or God. I am not a majestic man, but a pitiable and ridiculous one. And he threw back the folds of his cassock and smiled as he looked at his thin legs in their underclothing. Then he dropped the folds of the cassock again and began reading the prayers, making the sign of the cross and prostrating himself. Can it be that this couch will be my beer? he read, and it seemed as if a devil whispered to him, A solitary couch is itself a beer, falsehood. And in imagination he saw the shoulders of a widow with whom he had lived. He shook himself and went on reading. Having read the precepts, he took up the Gospels, opened the book, and happened on a passage he often repeated and knew by heart. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And he put away all the doubts that had arisen. As one replaces an object of insecure equilibrium, so he carefully replaced his belief on its shaky pedestal and carefully stepped back from it so as not to shake or upset it the blinkers were adjusted again and he felt tranquilized and repeating his childhood prayer lord receive me receive me he felt not merely at ease but thrilled and joyful he crossed himself and lay down on the bedding on his narrow bench tucking his summer cassock under his head he fell asleep at once and in his light slumber he seemed to hear the tinkling of sledge-bells. He did not know whether he was dreaming or awake, but a knock at the door aroused him. He sat up, distrusting his senses, for the knock was repeated. Yes, it was a knock close at hand, at his door, and with it the sound of a woman's voice. My God, can it be true, as I have read in the lives of the saints, that the devil takes on the form of a woman? Yes. It is a woman's voice, and a tender, timid, pleasant voice. Phooey! And he spat to exorcise the devil. No, it was only my imagination, he assured himself, and he went to the corner where his lectern stood, falling on his knees in the regular and habitual manner, which of itself gave him consolation and satisfaction. He sank down, his hair hanging over his face, and pressed his head 
already going bald in front to the cold, damp strip of drugget on the draughty floor. He read the psalm old Father Peeman had told him warded off temptation. He easily raised his light and emaciated body on his strong, sinewy legs and tried to continue saying his prayers, but instead of doing so he involuntarily strained his hearing. He wished to hear more. All was quiet. From the corner of the roof regular drops continued to fall into the tub below. Outside was a mist and fog eating into the snow that lay on the ground. It was still very still and suddenly there was a rustling at the window and a voice that same tender timid voice which could only belong to an attractive woman said let me in for christ's sake it seemed as though his blood had all rushed to his heart and settled there he could hardly breathe let god arise and let his enemies be scattered but i am not a devil it was obvious that the lips had uttered this were smiling. I am not a devil, but only a sinful woman who has lost her way, not figuratively, but literally. She laughed. I am frozen and beg for shelter. He pressed his face to the window, but the little icon lamp was reflected by it and shone on the whole pane. He put his hands to both sides of his face and peered between them. Fog missed a tree and just opposite him she herself yes there a few inches from him was the sweet kindly frightened face of a woman in a cap and a coat of long white fur leaning towards him their eyes met with instant recognition not that they had ever known one another they had never met before but by the look they exchanged they and he particularly felt that they knew and understood one another after that glance to imagine her to be a devil and not a simple kindly sweet timid woman was impossible who are you why have you come he asked do please open the door she replied with capricious authority i am frozen i tell you i have lost my way but i am a monk a hermit oh do please open the door or do you wish me to freeze under your window while you say your prayers but how have you i shan't eat you for god's sake let me in i'm quite frozen she really did feel afraid and said this in an almost tearful voice he stepped back from the window and looked at an icon of the saviour in his crown of thorns lord help me lord help me he exclaimed crossing himself and bowing low then he went to the door and opened it into the tiny porch felt for the hook that fastened the outer door and began to lift it he heard steps outside she was coming from the window to the door ah she suddenly exclaimed and he understood that she had stepped into the puddle that the dripping from the roof had formed at the threshold his hands trembled and he could not raise the hook of the tightly closed door oh what are you doing let me in i am all wet i am frozen you are thinking about saving your soul and are letting me freeze to death he jerked the door towards him raised the hook and without considering what he was doing pushed it open with such force that it struck her oh pardon he suddenly exclaimed reverting completely to his old manner with ladies she smiled on hearing that pardon he is not quite so terrible after all she thought it's all right it is you who must pardon me she said stepping past him i should never have ventured but such an extraordinary circumstance if you please he uttered and stood aside to let her pass him a strong smell of fine scent which he had long not encountered struck him he went through the little porch into the cell where he lived he closed the outer door without fastening the hook and stepped in after her lord jesus christ son of god have mercy on me a sinner lord have mercy on me a sinner he prayed unceasingly not merely to himself but involuntarily moving his lips if you please he said to her again she stood in the middle of the room moisture dripping from her to the floor as she looked him over her eyes were laughing 
forgive me for having disturbed your solitude but you see what position i am in it all came about from our starting from town for a sledge drive and my making a bet that i would walk back by myself from vorabevka to the town but then i lost my way and if i had not happened to come upon your cell she began lying but his face confused her so that she could not continue but became silent she had not expected him to be at all such as he was he was not as handsome as she had imagined but was nevertheless beautiful in her eyes his greyish hair and beard slightly curling his fine regular nose and his eyes like glowing coal when he looked at her made a strong impression on her he saw that she was lying yes so said he looking at her and again lowering his eyes i will go in there and this place is at your disposal and taking down the little lamp he lit a candle and bowing low to her went into the small cell beyond the partition and she heard him begin to move something about there probably he is barricading himself in from me she thought with a smile and throwing off her white dogskin cloak she tried to take off her cap which had become entangled in her hair and in the woven kerchief she was wearing under it she had not got at all wet when standing under the window and had said so only as a pretext to get him to let her in but she really had stepped into the puddle at the door and her left foot was wet up to the ankle and her overshoe full of water she sat down on his bed a bench only covered by a bit of carpet and began to take off her boots the little cell seemed to her charming the narrow little room some seven feet by nine was as clean as glass there was nothing in it but the bench on which she was sitting the bookshelf above it and a lectern in the corner a sheepskin coat and a cassock hung on nails by the door above the lectern was a little lamp and an icon of christ in his crown of thorns the room smelt strangely of perspiration and of earth it all pleased her even that smell her wet feet especially one of them were uncomfortable and she quickly began to take off her boots and stockings without ceasing to smile pleased not so much at having achieved her object as because she perceived that she had abashed that charming strange striking and attractive man he did not respond but what of that she said to herself father sergius father sergius or how does one call you what do you want replied a quiet voice please forgive me for disturbing your solitude but really i could not help it i should simply have fallen ill and i don't know that i shan't now i am all wet and my feet are like ice pardon me replied the quiet voice i cannot be of assistance to you i would not have disturbed you if i could have helped it i am only here till daybreak he did not reply and she heard him muttering something probably his prayers you will not be coming in here she asked smiling for i must undress to dry myself he did not reply but continued to read his prayers yes that is a man thought she getting her dripping boot off with difficulty she tugged at it but could not get it off the absurdity of it struck her and she began to laugh almost inaudibly but knowing that he would hear her laughter and would be moved by it just as she wished him to be she laughed louder and her laughter gay natural and kindly really acted on him just in the way she wished yes i would love a man like that such eyes and such a simple noble face and passionate too despite all the prayers he mutters thought she you can't deceive a woman in these things as soon as he put his face to the window and saw me he understood and knew the glimmer of it was in his eyes and remained there he began to love me and desired me yes desired said she getting her overshoe and her boot off at last and starting to take off her stockings to remove those long stockings fastened with elastic it was necessary to raise her skirts she felt embarrassed and said don't come in but there was no reply from the other side of the wall 
the steady muttering continued and also a sound of moving he is prostrating himself to the ground no doubt thought she but he won't bow himself out of it he is thinking of me just as i am thinking of him he is thinking of these feet of mine with the same feeling that i have and she pulled off her wet stockings and put her feet up on the bench pressing them under her she sat a while like that with her arms round her knees and looking pensively before her but it is a desert here in this silence no one would ever know she rose took her stockings over to the stove and hung them on the damper it was a queer damper and she turned it about and then stepping lightly on her bare feet returned to the bench and sat down there again with her feet up there was complete silence on the other side of the partition she looked at the tiny watch that hung around her neck it was two o'clock our party should return about three she had not more than an hour before her well am i to sit like this all alone what nonsense i don't want to i will call him at once father sergius father sergius sergey dmitrich prince kasatsky beyond the partitions all was silent listen this is cruel i would not call you if it were not necessary i am ill i don't know what is the matter with me she exclaimed in a tone of suffering oh oh she groaned falling back on the bench and strange to say she really felt that her strength was failing that she was becoming faint that everything in her ached and that she was shivering with fever listen help me i don't know what is the matter with me oh oh she unfastened her dress exposing her breast and lifted her arms bare to the elbow oh oh all this time he stood on the other side of the partition and prayed having finished all the evening prayers he now stood motionless his eyes looking at the end of his nose and mentally repeated with all his soul lord jesus christ son of god have mercy upon me but he had heard everything he had heard how the silk rustled when she took off her dress how she stepped with bare feet on the floor and had heard how she rubbed her feet with her hand he felt his own weakness and that he might be lost at any moment that was why he prayed unceasingly he felt rather as the hero in the fairy tale must have felt when he had to go on and on without looking round so sergius heard and felt that danger and destruction were there hovering above and around him and that he could only save himself by not looking in that direction for an instant but suddenly the desire to look seized him at the same instant she said this is inhuman i may die yes i will go to her but like the saint who laid one hand on the adulteress and thrust his other into the brazier but there is no brazier here he looked round the lamp he put his finger over the flame and frowned preparing himself to suffer and for a rather long time as it seemed to him there was no sensation but suddenly he had not yet decided whether it was painful enough he writhed all over jerked his hand away and waved it in the air no i can't stand that for god's sake come to me i'm dying oh well shall i perish no no not so i will come to you directly he said and having opened his door he went without looking at her through the cell into the porch where he used to chop wood there he felt for the block and for an axe which leant against the wall immediately he said and taking up the axe with his right hand he laid the forefinger of his left hand on the block swung the axe and struck with it below the second joint the finger flew off more lightly than a stick of similar thickness and bounding up turned over on the edge of the block and then fell to the floor he heard it fall before he felt any pain but before he had time to be surprised he felt a burning pain and the warmth of flowing blood he hastily wrapped the stump in the skirt of his cassock and pressing it to his hip went back into the room and standing in front of the woman lowered his eyes and asked in a low voice what do you want she looked at his pale face and his quivering left cheek and suddenly felt ashamed she jumped up 
seized her fur cloak and throwing it round her shoulders wrapped herself up in it i was in pain i have caught cold i father sergius i he let his eyes shining with a quiet light of joy rest upon her and said dear sister why did you wish to ruin your immortal soul temptations must come into the world but woe to him by whom temptation comes pray that god may forgive us she listened and looked at him suddenly she heard the sound of something dripping she looked down and saw that blood was flowing from his hand and down his cassock what have you done to your hand she remembered the sound she had heard and seizing the little lamp ran out into the porch there on the floor she saw the bloody finger she returned with her face paler than his and was about to speak to him but he silently passed into the back cell and fastened the door forgive me she said how can i atone for my sin go away let me tie up your hand go away from here she dressed hurriedly and silently and when ready sat waiting in her furs the sledge bells were heard outside father sergius forgive me go away god will forgive father sergius i will change my life do not forsake me go away forgive me and give me your blessing in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy ghost she heard his voice from behind the partition go she burst into sobs and left the cell the lawyer came forward to meet her well i see i have lost the bet it can't be helped where will you sit it is all the same to me she took a seat in the sledge and did not utter a word all the way home a year later she entered a convent as a novice and lived a strict life under the direction of the hermit arzeny who wrote letters to her at long intervals End of section one recording by james carson